Energy is the lifeblood of modern society. We all need it and none of us can live without it. So how do we create and use energy in a way that's good for the planet? National Grid Electricity System Operator is at the heart of this zero carbon revolution, working with industry to build Great Britain's energy system of the future. We publish future energy scenarios to set out what the future of energy could look like in the next 30 years and what we'll need to do to make each scenario a reality. Our research is unparalleled with insights and analysis drawn from over 600 experts. This podcast series explores key themes from Future Energy Scenarios 2021, assessing the energy Britain needs, examining where it could come from, how it needs to change, and what this means for consumers, society, and the energy system itself. Welcome to the ESO's Future of Energy podcast series. Today, we're focused on net zero and consumers. To halt the effects of climate change, many countries, including the UK, have committed to becoming net zero economies. If the UK is going to meet its zero carbon target by 2050, it's vital the ESO, working together with industry, delivers a zero carbon energy system of the future. And it's vital consumers understand the changes they can make too. I'm Samantha Simmons, and in this first episode of the Future of Energy podcast series, I'm joined by Matthew Wright and Emily Ledbetter from National Grid Electricity System Operator, who will take you through the journey to net zero, the technology, the challenges and the possibilities. Matthew and Emily, welcome to the Future of Energy podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Samantha. Thank you. Thanks, Samantha. Matthew, if I can come to you first, what are National Grid ESO's future energy scenarios and just explain why they're so important? Sure. The uh, future energy scenarios, FES or FES as we like to call them, illustrate a range of credible ways in which to decarbonise our energy system. They paint a picture, if you like, of what the future might look like and how we might get there. Emily? Yeah, I've been working on FES for a few years in one guise or another. It's a really interesting document. The way it's written, it sets out four credible pathways to the future that say what might happen, pulling on different levers to try and understand how they impact our target of whether or not we're going to meet net zero. It's really interesting and hopefully quite accessible for people, even if they're not actively involved in energy, as many of us on this call will be day to day. Why are we hearing more and more about net zero and why should people care about it? I'm not sure I can put this any more succinctly than Greta Thunberg already has, but as the UK, we've in June 2019 put into legislation that we're going to have a net zero target by 2050. And when we talk about net zero, what we mean is net zero greenhouse gas emissions. So that's either by reducing the amount of carbon that we produce or capturing that carbon at the point it is produced and then sending it off somewhere to be stored or reused rather than released into the atmosphere, or offsetting those emissions through greenhouse gas removal. And that can be through things like planting trees to take some of that carbon back out of the atmosphere. Greenhouse gases trap heat in the Earth's atmosphere and that contributes to global warming and climate change. So what we need to do, the scientists out there all agree, need to keep that global temperature rise below one and a half degrees before pre-industrial levels. And if we don't reach that net zero target by 2050, we're going to change the temperature of our planet in a way that is irreversible and catastrophic. And that's going to lead to 
damage to the planet. It's going to lead to flooding, forest fires, and worse than the, we're already seeing. So it might feel like a long way off, but we look back in the other direction. It's as far away from 2021 as 1992 is. I think most people now recognise that reaching net zero is critical to the future of the planet and our society. And there have been many studies that have described the impacts of the planet associated with a temperature rise of more than one and a half to two degrees. I mean, we had the heat waves just at the end of June there in, in the Pacific Northwest, where temperatures approached 50 degrees C, which was five degrees more than they'd ever been before and described by people living there as unbearable. And bear in mind, this is Canada. We're not talking about the tropical parts of the planet. And as Emily said, you know, if you want to sort of get a real feel for this, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change published a report a couple of years ago, which is written as these things are in quite factual terms, but the message it carries is very powerful and concerning and talks about not just the heat waves, the sea level rise, threatening low-lying nations, the forest fires, the biodiversity loss, the almost complete loss of coral, droughts, floods. If you really want to get clued up, but also scare yourself a little. It's worth reading that report. What's the earliest that FES or FES says we can get to net zero? Our most ambitious scenario is called leading the way, and that reaches net zero in 2047. So three years before the 2050 target, which is not a huge amount. Two of the other scenarios do reach net zero by 2050, but they get there in different ways. And we have four different scenarios to sort of show the variability or the ways in which we could get credibly to net zero. Consumer transformation and system transformation are two of them, and they represent different ways to get to that target, either by changing the way we use energy or changing the way in which we generate and supply it. Leading the ways describes our fastest credible decarbonisation journey, and it's achieved through a combination of high consumer engagements with world-leading technology and investment, which allows us, as I say, to get there by 2047. The fourth scenario, which is called steady progression, and as the name implies, sort of projects forward continuing decarbonisation at about the pace that we're doing now. It represents our slowest credible speed of decarbonisation, but importantly, doesn't get to net zero. In fact, only gets to 73% reduction in emissions by 2050, which is well short of the 100% or net zero target. It's interesting when you start talking about how quickly we in the UK can hit net zero, because obviously this isn't just a UK problem. It's really important that we think of this, that think of ourselves as part of a solution to a global problem. And I think there are ways in which the rest of the world is looking at us. You look at the decarbonisation that's already happened and is continuing to happen in our electricity system. The rest of the world is watching and seeing how we're doing that. There will be people out there who think, well, there's no point the UK making the effort to get there because the rest of the world isn't going to follow suit. But I think the rest of the world will have to. And if they can see us making a success of it, it's really important that we demonstrate that this can be done. So how does this compare to previous years and other predictions? Matthew? This year, our leading the way scenario gets there one year earlier than in FES 2020. And as I said, three years earlier than the legislated UK target. It's difficult to benchmark these things precisely. There, there are other scenarios that are out there. The Climate Change Committee published their own version of scenarios, some of which have us reaching net zero in the 2040s. So, you know, it's broadly consistent with us. I mean, there are many who would like to see us achieve net zero before that which would be great, frankly, but we don't think there's a credible path to get there. There's still too many things to do and, and too many questions yet unanswered. In fact, 
one of the things that we draw out in a key message from the FES this year is that there's still quite a lot of key policy decisions that need to be made if we're going to get to 2050 and net zero, like the relative roles of electrification or hydrogen for residential heating, the level of support for energy efficiency measures. We need to transition away from unabated gas. What's the timing on that? And indeed, whether natural gas has a place in the future at all, whether it could be used to produce hydrogen, for example. So our best estimate, as I say, is we can get there credibly in the late 2040s, but that's kind of downhill with the following wind. I don't think we'll get there much before that. Emily, your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's useful to put some statistics over this to try and make it a bit more real, perhaps. So when you think about how we all currently heat our homes, that for most people involves using a gas boiler. So 83% of residential heating appliances are gas boilers. And that amounts to around about 24 million homes in the UK. And most of those homes are still going to be there in 2050. Now, if we need to get to net zero by 2050, there's going to be barely any carbonised domestic heating. So you divide that 24 million homes by 29 years we've got, and that gives you 828,000 homes per year that need to have their heating systems changed. Now, that's 16,000 per week. And that obviously ignores the fact that a lot of those boilers would have to be changed at least once between now and 2050. But depending on the alternative that you choose, whether that's heat pumps or hydrogen, it's not just a case of switching out a boiler like for like. There's whole other changes that need to be made to people's homes in order to accommodate different heat sources. And that's to Matthew's point about energy efficient homes. So this isn't going to be easy. It's been referred to as the challenge of our generation, but it's definitely one worth taking on. So what needs to change to make sure that we get there? Yeah, so it's absolutely not going to happen without behaviour change from all of us as individuals and consumers. As I've already said, changing out heating, domestic heating is going to be a really important part of that. But even small things. So in the meantime, if all of us turned our thermostats down by an average of one degree compared to today's levels, that would lead to around about a 13% reduction in heat demand. But most importantly, I always come back to some really important policy decisions that need to be made in order to point people in the direction of what sort of changes they ought to be making. And there's obviously some infrastructure changes needed as well. So if we're going to meet our targets around the purchase of electric vehicles, so we know that there'll be no new sales of petrol or diesel cars or vans by 2030. So we need a heck of a lot of chargers to be installed in the meantime so that people have got somewhere they can charge those vehicles. And the government have also got a target to introduce 600,000 heat pumps a year by 2028. So all of that needs people to get involved in being willing to change up their heating and and move to a heat pump or, or hydrogen or another source of heat, because we know we're not going to be able to burn gas in our gas boilers in our homes anymore. That's a big deal for people. Yeah, it really is. And Matthew, your thoughts? Yeah, again, as Emily's covered, I mean, consumer involvement behaviour is actually pivotal to decarbonisation. You know, how we all react to market and policy changes and embrace smart technology will actually be vital to meeting net zero. We do draw out some examples of this in in the scenarios. By 2050, we'll all be driving around in electric vehicles, although that's at least what we anticipate. But they'll also have to be smart charging electric vehicles so that we don't overload the system by charging them all at once. We'll have to have much more of a what's called a demand side response where residential but also commercial and industrial consumers can 
change the amount of demand they're placing on the system depending upon what available generation resources are there. You know, what we say is, you know, what's got us here won't get us there. There's quite a different future, I think, particularly for consumers and consumer involvement in order to make sure we get to 2050 at net zero. So are there any key milestones that we have hit and what are the milestones that we need to be aiming for now? So far, we've been doing quite well in the UK, at least. You know, we've halved our greenhouse gas emissions between 1990 and 2020, although that's largely the result of the decarbonisation we've seen in the electricity sector, which has seen, you know, even in the last seven, eight years, we've seen almost a two thirds reduction in carbon intensity, largely as a result of stopping burning coal and, and seeing far more renewable generation coming onto the system. So as I say, it's largely been on the back of the electricity sector decarbonisation, but we won't get to net zero without involving many other sectors of the economy. The FES includes a key comparison chart that shows the various milestones for different aspects of the FES and links these to government targets. So examples are that we know about is proposed to end gas grid connections for new homes by 2025. So no more natural gas central heating for those homes a ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars and vans by 2030 and plug-in hybrids from 2035. We need to have the first hydrogen town by 2030, the first carbon capture use and storage clusters by 2025. So there's an awful lot to do. We are committed to, through the COP26 work actually, a 68% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. And the latest carbon budget set by the Climate Change Committee has us achieving 78% emissions by 2035. These are tough targets. So even though we've been doing well so far, I think, you know, the hard work really now starts. Emily, what are your thoughts on key milestones? So we've already seen a whole lot of key milestones happen. So we've had in the last year records around the length of period we've gone without any coal for generating. We've had maximum ever wind, maximum ever solar, lowest ever carbon intensity. But all of that has happened without people generally noticing it. So when you come home and flip the light switches on, the lights come on and you don't know whether that has been powered by coal or powered by wind. So going forward, people will have to get much more actively involved and they will be impacted much more by the changes that are going on in order to meet net zero by 2050. And what role does the ESO play? A very big role. It's certainly the reason why I wanted to come and work for the ESO and many people that work here are, are very passionate and committed to wanting to be part of the energy transition, wanting to be part of the solution to climate change. So, it's, you know, it's a powerful uh, engagement and motivator for the staff here. And why we're so central is that, you know, clearly one of the main requirements to meet these targets and certainly net zero by 2050 is to increase the level of electrification across sectors that have traditionally used fossil fuels. So road transport, you know, vehicles, heating. But that electrification is only helpful if it's electricity supplied by renewable sources or and or, you know, it's decarbonised. So that's why we have an ambition to be able to operate a net zero or zero carbon grid by 2025. And actually, if we achieve this, we'll be the first major economy to make this transition in the world. Now, it's easier said than done. <laughs> and there's a lot of things the ESO must do to make that happen. But we're running world-leading innovation and pathfinder projects to ensure we're ready for the system of the future. Things like helping us to integrate more and more renewables onto the system. That's what we're working hard on. Yeah, I think you know, we've got a really central role to play.
I don't think you should underestimate how difficult it is for an electricity system operator to go from running a system that is predominantly about steady state fossil fuel burning that provides a consistent level of power and you can flex that power quite easily to accommodate changing demand levels to go to something that has to be much more dynamic to flex demand levels much more to supply because we can't control the wind and the sun in the same way that we can control coal and gas fired power stations. And this was once described to me as an electricity system operator that historically it's been almost the equivalent of happily chugging along at 50 miles an hour in the slow lane of a motorway to in the future having to be able to drive at 100 miles an hour down a country lane. That's the difference in the sort of levels of reaction that we need to have as an organisation. And that's very challenging. But as Matthew said, absolutely everybody that I come across in the ESO is so excited about the challenge of doing that and being world leaders in this space. It's really exciting. And if you're not in the industry like yourselves, what is there that individuals can do to help to change things? One of the key messages of FES is that this won't be achieved without behaviour change from individuals and consumers. So we've already said there's going to be much more renewable energy on the system and there will be a requirement for more demand side flexibility. So that means people making use of time of use tariffs. So electricity prices that differ depending on how much supply and demand is available and choosing to put your washing machine on when there's plenty of power as opposed to when there might not be so much and encouraging people to do that by changing the price of electricity depending on the time that they use it and how much supply is out there. There's also going to be a need to embrace smart technology so that a lot of that happens without you having to get too involved. So your washing machine automatically kicks in when the wind blows and the sun shines rather than you having to remember to go and switch it on. There's absolutely lots that individuals can do to help. And our scenarios assume that up to 83% of car owners will engage with smart charging to make sure that their electric vehicles charge when there's plenty of supply available. There's all sorts of other things people are already doing. We've seen a vast increase in people becoming vegan because we can all see the carbon intensity of beef and dairy products. There's a whole load of other things that people can and possibly should be doing in, in the meantime. But this all needs to be done fairly. There are obviously vulnerable consumers out there and we need to make sure that we enable and incentivise those who can engage but don't penalise people who can't. Matthew, your final thoughts? It's not really a, a matter of what they can do to help. They're absolutely, consumers that is, are absolutely central to us getting there. We just simply won't get there without much more flexibility on the supply side and that necessarily involves consumers. And I think there's a, a vested interest for everybody though because it's been estimated the benefits of a fully flexible energy system where consumers engage in the ways in which Emily has described could cut the cost of reaching net zero by up to well over 16 billion pounds a year by 2050. So this supply side flexibility that we keep talking about is really consumers engaging with net zero and changing their lifestyles and the ways in which they go about their daily lives to have less of a carbon impact on society and the planet. So it's absolutely essential that we find the right communications messages and, and indeed the right products and technologies to really get consumers engaged in the 2050 target. Well, Matthew and Emily, thanks so much for joining us today and for your fascinating insights on net zero and consumers. Thanks for listening today. There will be another Future of Energy podcast soon. For more information on our future energy scenarios, head to our website, nationalgrideso.com. Goodbye.